Coronavirus NZ, a stuff podcast. Hey Adam, I've got an idea for a spin-off podcast. Oh good, because, you know, we still need to be vigilant and so on, but things are really winding down on the New Zealand coronavirus front, hey? So, so what's the big idea? Well, you know, I got to thinking on Saturday night when the Warriors completed 44 sets of six and slayed the Dragons, and then we've got the Northern Mystics and the other teams all limbering up ready to start again on the 19th, and things are really getting back to normal post-COVID for sports. What's the Warriors? Ah, oh, forget it. All right. Anyway, welcome to Coronavirus NZ for Tuesday the 2nd of June. I'm Adam Dudding. And I'm Eugene Bingham. Twice a week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I can't say my words today, we bring you the main headlines, some of the more unusual things about Level 2 and beyond, and then slow it down to look at something in particular. It could be a Hollywood script, couldn't it? The poor, underprivileged, billion-dollar studio fights its way to the airport amid a global pandemic, loads up an aircraft with filmmakers who've been living at the epicentre of the disease, then force their way into an island nation that has rejected nine out of ten applications for overseas worker exemptions, drama, tension, potential contagion. Yeah, and then in a plot twist we find out they'd threatened to pull the pin on New Zealand if they couldn't get their crews across the border. The shame of it is, though, that that's not the movie that's getting made. Instead, there's going to be something about a bunch of blue aliens on a planet being chased by bad guys. Oh, well. Hey, speaking of bad guys, I don't like to be mean, and neither do I like to bang on about things, but I'm gonna. The contact tracing app is just not doing it for me. I've been to about 10 places with QR codes, and the government app only worked in one place. Same here. It's a dud. We need a hero. Later on the show, Cook Islands news editor Jonathan Milne joins the show to talk about pandemic life in Rarotonga, about the impact on the country's tourism-dependent economy, and New Zealand's paternalistic attitudes towards a Pacific bubble. But first, here's what's happening. Another zero day, our 11th in a row. There's still one active case remaining, and that person isn't receiving hospital-level care. Go you good thing, whoever you are. Well, no, actually, stay put, don't go anywhere, and don't infect anyone else, but you know what I mean. The latest global estimates from Johns Hopkins University say that at least 6.2 million people are known to have been infected with the coronavirus, and at least 374,452 people have died. And these figures are both thought to be significant underestimates. Despite calls for people who attended yesterday's Black Lives Matter protests in New Zealand to be prosecuted for breaching Alert Level 2 rules, no one will be charged. And neither, says Ashley Bloomfield, is there a requirement for them to self-isolate. He said that since there's no evidence of community transmission, a 14-day quarantine is not required. The term bubble became so much part of our pandemic experience, we kind of forgot that it was a largely Kiwi thing. Anthropologists from Auckland's AUT University and the London School of Economics have studied New Zealanders' experiences of living in their bubbles as the UK is considering adopting the system. Our brilliant colleague, Stuff's Ali Moore, has been talking to the study authors and she's on the line. Kia ora, Ali. Kia ora. So this study, Living in Bubbles During the Coronavirus Pandemic, first of all, can you tell us who did it and why? Well, it came about when London School of Economics Associate Professor Nick Long, who's an anthropologist, was having uh, little conversations on Facebook with his colleagues at AUT here in Auckland about the bubble thing, 
Which is a really Kiwi thing. Um, we originated it, apparently, and it may be based on certain experiences of African villages during Ebola, but that's a whole other story. We're certainly the first uh, nation that's implemented in the way we have during uh, coronavirus. Anyway, Nick Long was talking to his colleagues and they decided they'd launch what they call a rapid research study. Initially, it was much smaller, I understand, than it turned out. But, um, you know, they ended up with a piece of research that's actually quite revelatory about Kiwis' um, attitudes towards lockdown in Level 4 and Level 3. And uh, they're excited about it because they feel it has a lot to teach other nations in their ongoing response to coronavirus. It looked at the good and the bad of bubble life. Let's start with the positives. What were the good things they found? The great things they found was um, really around this feeling of kindness, which of course was something that the government, a message that the government pushed uh, and the media picked up on quite ably as well. And that was quite different from other governments' responses to coronavirus they found For example, in the United States and in the UK, where, you know, you'd have to admit the issues they have with COVID-19 are quite severe compared to us, they have messaged using warlike language. So, you know, the war on the virus and the battle against it and, and, uh, you know, we must come together to to fight and all that. Whereas the messaging from the New Zealand government was, you know, we've got this and, you know, be kind and we'll get through it together as, you know, the famous team of five million. And through the responses from, I think it was well over a thousand Kiwis, the researchers found that that really resonated with people and made them want to stick to the rules which is, of course, I suppose, one of the things that's carried us through to what is internationally known as quite a good result. And it had an impact on who joined people's bubbles as well. Yes, it did. So in level three, this is one of the main things the study uh, looked at was what did people do in level three when they were allowed to extend their bubble a little bit. They found that people actually put a lot of thought into that. They didn't automatically jump at having their boyfriend or their girlfriend or their partner or their mother or they actually thought about the people in their community or in their friend circle who really needed uh, to join a bubble. And quite often they took people into their bubble who they don't necessarily see a lot normally, but they felt needed support, which is where that kind of kindness really comes through, I think. There were some disturbing or uncomfortable truths, I suppose, that were exposed to. What were they? Oh, there's a bit of good old racism, which I, I guess sadly we would expect. There was some racist attitudes shown towards people uh, of Asian descent, for example, as you, you know, the sense that it's uh, that Donald Trump has been pushing that it's the that you know the Chinese flu. And there was also some pretty disturbing stuff in response to Pacific Islanders, you know, this feeling that they didn't have the discipline to stick to level four and level three rules. Yes, I roll. So that was, you know, amongst the, the more disappointing stuff. The, the the thing that I pulled out to, to report on as, I guess, the lead for the story this morning was the fact that there was an outpouring of araha for essential workers, you know, your supermarket workers and your health workers and council workers and, you know, all of those people that were, that had to go out into the world during Level 4 while we were all 
safe in inverted commas at home. So publicly, there was this sense that we were all in support of them. But privately, people were admitting to the researchers that when it came to the opportunity to expand their bubble, they were reluctant to take essential workers who might need support into their bubble because, I suppose, of reasonable fears of infection. And an important note was that it worked the other way around as well. Essential workers were reluctant to join other people's bubbles because they understood that they were being exposed more than other Kiwis and, you know, they didn't want to put anybody else at risk. How was your own bubble experience, Ellie? Well, pretty good, really. I like, I like being at home with my whānau. Uh, we brought my, it was a bit dramatic at first, we brought my son and my daughter, both of whom were in separate parts of Australia, home in a heck of a hurry on the 24th of March. I managed to get them on a plane just before lockdown. So they were able to quarantine here at home, which was great. But we had my daughter here with me and my son was at my ex-husband's house. And that mean meant we didn't see him for two weeks and I couldn't hug him and welcome him home. Uh, and that included his 19th birthday as well. So that was a bit distressing. Funnily enough, we were amongst those people who responded to the survey. Not that I responded to the survey, but we were similar to respondents to the survey who in level three, if they were going to kind of break the rules slightly, always did it outside, which I thought was really interesting. So for example, on his 19th birthday, my son came around and came through the the side gate to our house and sat, you know, a good three metres away from us all on the back deck on the beanbags while we gave him a cake, you know, we put a cake down in the middle of the deck and he picked it up. And <laughs> there are a lot of people that responded to the survey that reported that sort of interaction at level three. And they also felt a bit guilty about it. So there was one story that Nick Long told me uh, about a young woman, a woman in her, Pakeha woman in her 20s, who conducted an exchange of jams and chutneys with a friend in the street. So they, you know, put them down on the footpath and then, you know, the other person would pick them up and uh, still felt very guilty about that as though they were breaking the rules. And I think the, the overall takeaway from that was that most people, People were absolutely committed either to the letter of the rules or at least the spirit of them. Certainly a time of life we will never forget, will we? But as is the way these days, you have to get to another Zoom meeting, so we'll let you go. But thank you very much for joining us, Sally Moore. Hey, thanks so much for having me on. Tuesday. So that's five days since Thursday's episode. So there's always going to be a bunch of coronavirus news and views to catch up on today. But over the weekend, my attention and most of what I was reading in the news and on Twitter and Facebook and the rest of it was sort of absorbed by the worldwide reaction to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis and the protests that followed and the riots that followed the protests and the talking and finger pointing and anger that's followed the rioting. So in a way, for almost the first time since New Zealand's lockdown began, I found myself occasionally forgetting that there was even a pandemic going on. And that's Partly, of course, because so much of regular life in New Zealand is returning. I've met friends and been shopping and hugged family and been to a restaurant. But, of course, there is still a pandemic going on, and it's the backdrop to everything else. So I'd be watching a clip of police shooting pepper balls at a reporter in Louisville. Then notice, of course, half the people in this video are wearing face masks because they're all still scared of getting COVID-19. Or, closer to home, I watch crowds of New Zealanders gathering in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement, which would normally seem a pretty great idea, and thought, 
do these people realize we're actually not done with level two yet? Anyway, the upshot is that when I started catching up on the past five days of regular COVID-19 news, I realized there were loads of updates from around the world that had completely passed me by. So here's a few of them, just headlines really. So in the US, Dr. Anthony Fauci, that's the government's top public health official and the guy you might have come to know from those mildly farcical White House briefings, has told a reporter that where he used to talk to Trump about COVID once or more a day, he hasn't actually spoken or met with Trump for a couple of weeks. Also from the US, President Trump said he is terminating funding for the World Health Organization and the American Congressional Budget Office said COVID-19 is going to wipe eight trillion dollars from the US economy over the next decade. In New Zealand dollars, that's 12 trillion. But whichever way you count it, it's a kind of an incomprehensibly vast number. In Pakistan, the government is winding down its lockdown, even though infections are on the rise, because it says the country's just not wealthy enough to ride out the economic costs of lockdown much longer. The Prime Minister Imran Khan has pointed out that 50 million people in Pakistan live below the poverty line. So far, Pakistan has reported 1,500 deaths. Spain yesterday reported no new COVID deaths in a 24-hour period, the first time since March. Norway and Denmark are about to drop border controls between each other, but they've left out Sweden. And bars and restaurants have reopened in the Netherlands for the first time in three months. Down here in New Zealand, it can feel like we're very disconnected from what's happening around the rest of the world. But of course, we aren't. And we've seen very real evidence of that today. You can draw a pretty straight line between what started in Minneapolis to the announcement today from the Prime Minister that the decision about when to move to Level 1 has been moved forward next Monday. You can ask, how have I contorted myself to arrive at that conclusion? Well, I don't think you can ignore the impact of the Black Lives Matter protest that happened in Auckland over the weekend. It led to calls from various politicians and pundits saying, look, social distancing went out the window. Why are we still on level two when thousands of people can be out there on the streets? We get a chance to catch up with Stuff reporter Thomas Manch straight after the press conference where Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced that Cabinet will reconsider when to move to level one on June 8. Hello there, uh, Eugene, Adam and listeners. It all kicked off this morning um, before 7am when um, Winston Peters went on News Talk ZB and sort of extended a broadside against um, his, his own cabinet colleagues that he's been running since last week. And he says, effectively, I want these people prosecuted. Um, they've breached the rules, and it just demonstrates why we need to be at level one. It seemed the PM was, in a way, almost prepared. She came on ZB shortly afterwards, and she said, no, look, I hear what Peters is saying. Regardless, I'm, I've had conversations with the Ministry of Health, and we're going to bring forward the decision around alert level one to June 8. Previously, Ardern has said that June 22 would be the latest that they would consider moving to alert level 1 and that June 8 would be a reconsideration of the level 2 settings. She says that New Zealand has been doing better than it than expected and the long tail of the virus's transmission isn't as long as, as once thought. I mean, all of this comes as there's been mounting pressure for um, level 1 to come as, you know, we've had now I think 11 days without with zero new cases of COVID-19. People were just operating un- basically under the pretext that, that the virus is not out there any longer. So that's some of the political backdrop behind it. I mean, Peter seems very motivated at the moment. And as the Prime Minister was giving her post-cabinet press conference before, he would have put up a, he put up a video on Twitter showing clips of the protesters and saying, you know, why aren't we in level one if, if, if they're able to do this and won't be prosecuted? Part of the reasoning for this, you could suggest, is that Peter's is, you know, 
like like the rest of New Zealand, spent more than a month in lockdown. He's been fairly quiet on the media front, and his party has polled at three percent in recent polls. So he needs to get he needs to stick his neck out there and, and get seen and heard. So yeah, we may soon hear about what level one will look like in the coming days. It won't mean a lot, pre- presumably, but it could mean you know fewer queues outside Bunnings, and you can order the drink from the bar as opposed to sitting down on the table. And then you know, come June eight, we might have uh, an announcement saying that we're going to level one by Wednesday next week. If I may be allowed to mix a metaphor, I think that here on Coronavirus NZ, we can possibly milk a bit more from our Where's the Flower investigation. You could say there's a bit more juice in the tank of the WTF mobile, that for a show produced on the smell of an oily rag, there's still a bit more terps in the bottle. Okay, Adam, your metaphors are indeed as well mixed as a fine batch of Edmund's scone dough, but what on earth are you talking about? Right, sorry. Well, it's just that even though New Zealand's flower distribution seems to be thoroughly back on track, there is still one last T uncrossed, one last I undotted in the saga of our banking goods supply chain snafu. There is still a grievous shortage of shorebake yeast. What's shorebake yeast? Well, it's basically regular yeast with some improvers in it. You know, a bit of vitamin C to increase the loaf volume, some lecithin to enhance the dough elasticity. You know all this, surely, Eugene. But Anyway, I've gradually watched the supermarket shelves refill with big bags of flour, then regular-sized bags of flour, then baking powder and tartaric acid and all those other things, and eventually regular yeast as well. But Shawbake, it doesn't seem to be available anywhere within a 20k radius of where I live. I've been to Countdown, to Pack and Save, to New World. I even went to Faro. Fancy. But that is a scandal, I guess. Should we launch a new investigation? Is this the energising kick up the bum that Coronavirus NZ needs? Even though we're down to two episodes a week and seriously questioning the show's relevance once New Zealand moves to level one. Should we do it? Nah, I'm still scarred from the original WTF. But seriously, if someone who works in the baking supply world knows why Shawback yeast isn't really available, that's the Edmunds, by the way, there are other brands with different names, but it's the same principle. Let us know. Drop a line to viruspod at stuff.co.nz and there's every chance... We'll read it and read it out. Speaking of which, email inbox. Right, we've heard from Cassie, who has a very interesting point that we hadn't really thought about. She starts, love your podcast. I was a wee bit gutted when you went down to two shows a week, but I am coming to terms with it now. Thank you, Cassie, and sorry for the whole reduction in frequency thing. Anyway, so Cassie's situation is this. She and her daughter, Ruth, who is two years old, are living in Invercargill, while her husband, Brett, is working in Alaska. He's been there since March the 20th. Now, the twist is that Brett is an Australian. Under the current COVID-19 restrictions, Cathy writes, Brett should be granted entry to New Zealand so long as he is travelling with her, a New Zealand citizen by birth. But who wants to fly to the US to collect someone? It seems a bit, I don't know, risky, not to mention not good for carbon emissions. So Brett filled out a form to be invited to apply for an exemption, but he's been declined, which takes Cassie back to the position of having to think about flying to LA to meet Brett and come back home with him. She writes... There is a Facebook group called NZ Citizens and PRs, which I suppose means permanent residents, separated from partners by NZ Border Closure, which we are members of. I have read a few instances of New Zealand immigration recommending Kiwis travel overseas to retrieve their family members. This is, of course, at odds with the current New Zealand travel advice of do not travel. Well, yes, it does seem really quite odd. And not exactly a great use of resources to put people like Cassie into that position. So... 
Anyone have any clues? Let us know by getting in touch. Viruspod at stuff.co.nz. And we may have a little bit of a, a look around ourselves as well. Yeah. Hey, by the way, Cassie included a photo of Brett and little Ruth. Oh, cute. Thanks, Cassie. That is very cute. Plague playlist. All right, this one's a touch tangential, but it's worthy of inclusion, no doubt. So, the US Air Force Band of the Pacific was supposed to tour New Zealand in April to perform, but obviously, you know. And so, instead, the band has joined forces, see what I did there, with counterparts from New Zealand's Navy, Army and Air Force bands to produce a classic Waiata, Tuteramai na Iwi. Each performer did their bit in isolation, and it's all been brought together online. Kapai. Bit of history: the song's composer was Wiramu Tito Huata, who was a New Zealand military chaplain to the 28th Māori Battalion. His whānau gave permission for the wire to be used. Oh, wait. Jonathan Milne used to be my boss. He was editor of the Sunday Star Times until about a year ago, when he and his wife Georgie and his boys upped sticks and took off to the Cook Islands, where he's become editor of the Cook Islands News. So, since COVID-19 struck, he's been at his new home in Rarotonga, going through the Pacific version of lockdown in a bubble of 15,000 people, and he's on the line now. Kirana, Jonathan. Adam. I'm pretty sure you were pretty much always your own boss. <laughs> well, yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I did tell you what I was doing sometimes. Anyway, when we emailed you about this, you were a bit nervous about speaking for the Cook Islands, seeing you're you know, only a, a very recent arrival. Yeah, exactly. I'm, um, I've only been in Cook Islands for well, a year yesterday, actually, my family arrived. And so we're, uh, we're what we call papa, which New Zealanders will recognise as Pākehā. Or in summer, will be Palangi. Um, and what that means, of course, is we're not from here. And um, I try in my new role as editor of Cook Islands News just to be a little bit respectful and try to hold back on my opinion sometimes, which is difficult for me, but um, try to realise that I don't know as much as I sometimes think I do. So, um, you know, take what I say with a little bit of a grain, grain of salt in that respect. We have always done that. But um, also, <laughs> we, we think this is fine because I think you should think of yourself more as a foreign correspondent there. And, you know, that's a legit position to be. You're the Kiwi Juno who's helicoptered in a year early, just in time to report for the coronavirus podcast. And what I can tell you is that I'm watching my five-year-old son um, cycle down to um, the Jesse at Avenue today. And when we went for a swim this morning, it says Queen's Birthday Monday here. He's the whitest little redhead you can imagine, but he's leaping off the Jesse into the water and he's pretty sure he's from here. He's thinks he's an island boy. <laughs> Very good. So January, February, COVID started to spread around the world and by March, New Zealand was getting ready to go into lockdown. So what about the Cook Islands? What were the lockdown rules there maybe compared to New Zealand? Okay, well, we were really nervous um, because our health system is, um, is well, we don't have an intensive care unit. We um, don't have tertiary care um, um, and it simply wouldn't have been ready. It wouldn't have been equipped to deal with COVID if it had got here. So our approach was really about shutting down the borders. We did a lot of physical distancing as well. Um, that was quite a big deal in the churches where um, um, a congregational singing in churches is you know, really close to people's hearts. Um, and to be told that they weren't allowed to sing anymore in church um, was difficult, but people really recognised that the risk of COVID to this country wasn't worth taking. 
And so they embraced social distancing. And then we just focused on the borders. And in the last um, in the last two months, only about three planes have come in with passengers. We've pretty much been locked into one big national bubble. The only three planes that have come in were repatriation flights, and those people had to do two weeks quarantine in hotels at either end in isolation. So um, it has been pretty tight, pretty tight on the border control. What that has meant, though, is that in the last few weeks, we've actually been able to loosen up internally. So no one comes in. No one leaves, but internally we can move around. We can see each other. Our kids are going, um, have been back at school for over a month now. Um, I never stopped going into the office every day for work and um, seeing my colleagues. And this Queen's birthday weekend, you know, going down to Murray Beach, which you know usually is a big tourist resort. Now, of course, there's no tourists here now. But going down to Murray Beach this weekend um, with the kids to go sailing and swimming, there was a buzz. There was a lot of locals out. Um, the Captain Tama Lagoon boats had about 50 people on sort of discounted local fares heading off to, uh, across the lagoon to the motu and to go snorkeling. Uh, I think I counted 21 little yachts of different kinds out in that little regatta on the um, lagoon. Um, my little boys in their optees and, um, and um, some big sort of sailing bucker and catamarans and um, 420s. So there was a real buzz about it. Um, uh, I, th- I think people almost... Um, letting themselves forget that COVID is happening, apart from the fact that there's no tourists and no money. Wow. So during the lockdown itself, when the kids were home from school, what was the personal experience of your own family? How, how was that? So we had a month um, when the kids were home from school over Easter. We don't have internet in the way that uh, you do in New Zealand and most other countries. I mean, we, we have internet. I'm talking to you on it now, but... Um, it's slow, it's erratic, it cuts out, and it's very expensive. So having the kids sitting at home watching Netflix is not an option here. Fortunately, we did have the option of going you know, down across the road to the beach or um, wandering around the plantations around our house. And um, I know this sounds like I'm um, gloating a little bit, but you know, grabbing a few capsicums and bananas and coconuts and smacking them open and I guess living the life that we always wanted when we, um, when we brought our kids over here. Mm, it does sound like a very different experience. But you mentioned tourism. Obviously, that's a huge part of the Cook Islands economy. So what has the shutting down of the borders meant for the economy? Yeah, so according to the ANZ Pacific Economist, um, tourism is 86% of the GDP of Cook Islands. That's more than just about anyone else in the world. We do not have a diversified economy. When tourism goes, the economy almost shuts down. Um, and that's what's happened. We, we don't have a backup plan. And there's no tourists here now. Um, no, no one can come in. So that's very grim. And there's a lot of nervousness in the private sector who have been immediately affected in the hip pockets by um, disappearance of all their revenue. There's a lot of nervousness about how long this is going to go on for and how many businesses we're going to lose, how many companies are going to go bankrupt before we can get people coming back in again. Mm. You've written about the the price of fish as being an indicator of what's going on. Yes. We've all heard of The Economist's Big Mac inflation indicator. Well, we've got the yellowfin tuna um, economic slowdown indicator, I think. So when the tourists stopped coming, so did um, some of the demand for fish dropped away. Also, the demand for the charter fishing operations. Um, a, you know, a lot of fishermen would t- take out tourists um, for the morning um, to go fishing. So suddenly the price of fish uh, went through the floor. And meanwhile, more people went fishing, even though there was less demand for it. So we had 
you know, I talked to um, a, a guy I know called um, Bo Williams who writes the odd um, cooking column for Cook Islands News, and he had to shut down his cafe. He was required to by um, Te Marae Ora, the Ministry of Health. So um, he went fishing to feed his family. So we had a glut of great, fresh, sustainable, ethically caught tuna, marlin, mahi-mahi, wahoo on the market. It was a fish lover's dream, and I happened to be a fish lover. I'd go down to Oven and Wharf, the same place where I you know, take my kids to go swimming you know, most days, and just find a you know, fisherman who'd come back in and you know, give him 30 bucks for a large yellowfin tuna, and then I'd um, go home and fill it up myself. And I think the last one, I got about four and a half kilos of great fresh tuna off it. It's great if you love fish, but it's um, terrible if you're a fisherman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So look, you need tourism at some point to get the economy moving again. And there's been plenty of talk for a while about a trans-Tasman bubble, so New Zealand and Australia. But there's a growing number of people here saying, hang on, what about the Pacific? And and there are obviously going to be quite a few New Zealanders ready to celebrate the crashing of our COVID curve with a bit of winter sun up your way. So would we be welcome? Yeah, look, I would say 75, 80% of the population here are desperate to get the tourists back. They can see our economy completely collapsing without the tourists. And 67% of the tourists last year were from New Zealand. So we're really critically dependent on that New Zealand tourism revenue. To get our economy going again, we need New Zealand tourists back. And we need them back soon because um, the government's already planned, um, uh, I think, about $140 million on stimulus spending that it doesn't know where that money's going to come from. It's, it's probably going to end up borrowing those at high in re- interest rates because there's nowhere else to get the money from at present. So we are in quite dire economic situation and we, we need the tourists back. Unfortunately, we're not sure that New Zealand and Australia are as motivated to create the Pacific bubble at the speed we need as we are. Um, and the signals we're getting out of New Zealand and Australia is that first, their priority is the trans-Tasman bubble before they extend it to the Pacific. And secondly, that I'm a bit dark about this, so forgive me, but listening to Winston Peters talk uh, uh, last week on, the, um, uh, on his way into the, uh, across the overbridge of Parliament, and he said, we don't want to imperil our Pacific cousins by um, you know, infecting them with another disease. And of course, we all know that New Zealand gave the Spanish flu to, uh, to large parts of the Pacific in 1918, um, uh, to Samoa and Tonga and more. We know that just last year, uh, 80 people died of measles in Samoa, um, and that came into Samoa from New Zealand. So we understand that caution. But I think here in Cook Islands, We've done a lot that's very good about managing our public health ourselves and taking care of ourselves. And I think we feel that that should be our decision rather than some sort of paternalistic imperialist New Zealand Mm. Mm. (laughs) saying, you know, we're going to look after you guys on your behalf by keeping your tourism shut down, by keeping your economy shut down is what they say. Because you know what? We can manage a few COVID cases, I think. I believe. Um, we've, we've had time to prepare. We've bought ourselves a few months' window to prepare. What we can't handle is the complete collapse of the economy. Are you able to make that decision independently? Because the Cook Islands are self-governing, but they have this uh, very particular relationship with New Zealand. Can you go rogue and just say, hey, bring the planes back? Yeah, I've been giving that some thought. Um, and, and I think the answer is no. Yes, we could make a unilateral decision and say our borders are open, planes may fly back in. 
But at present, the only place they can fly from is Auckland, is from New Zealand. And that means Air New Zealand. And I can't imagine Air New Zealand sort of flying in the face of the New Zealand government wishes. And of course, New Zealand government's, I think, a 52% shareholder in Air New Zealand. I can't imagine them flying in the face of the New Zealand government's wishes and starting flying into Cook Island simply because we asked them to. I don't know that the money would be there for them either. I think there may actually need to be subsidies either from the Cook Islands government or the New Zealand government to get those planes up in the air again, to get them um, uh, coming back um, 3,000 kilometres over the Pacific to Cook Islands to bring us some tourists. Ever since you've arrived in Rarotonga, Jono, you've been making reasonably open invitations on Facebook to anyone from New Zealand who wants to pop up and, and pay a visit. I think you've got a, a shack down on the water that, that we can stay on or something. something. Something like that. As long as you bring good coffee beans and whiskers dark chocolate. Right. Well, I hope the, the offer remains open. Obviously, um, I can't take it up because we're not allowed to come. But with any luck, that's going to change at some point. We'd love to see you over here. Thanks for coming on the show. Cheers, guys. Metaki. That's the Coronavirus NZ podcast for Tuesday, the 2nd of June. I'm Adam Dudding. He's Eugene Bingham. Thank you to Alison Moore, Jonathan Milne, Alex Liu, Catherine George, Patrick Crudson, and Carol Hirschfeld. You can find us on all the podcast platforms. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can email viruspod at stuff.co.nz. If you want to support Stuff's journalism by making a financial contribution to a locally owned media organisation as of today or yesterday, go to the link on the Stuff website, stuff.co.nz. We'll be back on Thursday. Bye later.